0: In mid-1932, a southeastern Asian country formerly known as Siam experienced a nearly bloodless coup the end result of which was a new constitutional monarchal government and eventually a new name for the country, Thailand. This revolution was the consequence of many things, as revolutions tend to be, but a particular trigger for this one was the relative success of the Chakri dynasty that had led the country as monarchs for most of the region's recent history. Their rule began in 1782, not quite 240 years ago, when the previous king decreed that Rama I would replace him as the first royal of his bloodline. Rama I had, until that point, served as a military leader, and then in a civil chancellor role called Chakri, which is where the dynasty name he adopted comes from. The Chakri dynasty like all dynasties, was far from perfect, and made more than a few mistakes over the course of the centuries during which they ruled Siam, but they also managed to keep the country from being colonized during that period, despite the many European conquests that went down in pretty much every other nearby nation throughout the course of their rule. And though they had to give up quite a lot of territory to those foreign invaders to keep the outsiders happy and less prone to invade, they still maintained enough power and influence to absorb many other smaller, nearby vassal states into their territory. They were also able to modernize their economy and industrial sectors, modernize in this context being a euphemism for westernize a process which resulted in a class of Western-educated Thai people throughout all levels of society, not just royalty, but also the lower nobility and the commoner classes. This was fairly unusual in the area at this point in history. One popular theory of what sparked the aforementioned revolution is that these comparably lower-class Thai people who had a lot of education but not as many prospects as their wealthier countrymen or the educated people in European countries at this time, looked around, noticed the Russian and French revolutions that had occurred in recent decades, and said, Okay, yeah, revolution sounds pretty good. And that resulted in the formation of a group called the People's Party, which overthrew the government, ending the around 800 years of rule by an absolute monarchy introducing in its stead a type of democracy to the area, and leading to the formalization of a new constitution, and forming a novel bicameral legislative body called the National Assembly. An alternative theory of events claims that the monarchy actually played a greater role in this transition than the first explanation affords. The royal family, having decided to give up some of their direct, obvious power in exchange for a new governmental system, that would be more acceptable to these Westerners that were conquering all of their neighbors. This was as much a cultural rebranding effort then as it was a revolution, as the outcome was the creation of a new nation with a new name that both presented the trappings of a modern Western country and implied that those who occupied this new country was a separate, superior race of people from that of their neighbors. More specifically, the Thai people, which is an older, language-based cultural designation, with members of this group living all throughout Southeast Asia. But the Siamese monarchs claimed this designation as their own, giving them an us-versus-them claim, against all people who are not of this group and not within their country, in hopes that the Europeans would see them as being more modern and sophisticated than the non-Thai people that they were so enthusiastically killing and conquering often using the well-worn colonialist excuse of uplifting the savages as a pretext. Whatever the actual catalysts of this shift, Thailand did manage to stay independent, despite everything, and the Chakri royal family kept their place on the throne, their position within society at times more direct, at times fairly withdrawn. But from then until today, they've managed to maintain a sense of place within government and society, their family representing something about the culture and the country's history, while also surviving the many trials and upendings that the public-facing government has dealt with, especially in the 20th century, when coup after coup kept the civilian and military aspects of the government in near-constant flux. But the royal family, with few exceptions, were a comparably... Stable pillar in the nation's top down leadership system. After a particularly tumultuous period, during which the king was seemingly assassinated in his bed, the Thai military seized control of the government, and the Vietnam War caused the wealth and population of the nation to balloon, a modern Thai democracy movement began to form, putting down a few initial shoots in 1968 before blooming throughout the 1970s. One particularly influential component of this movement was a protest march that formed in mid-October 1973. Thousands of protesters gathered to demand the release of 13 students who had been arrested on charges of conspiracy to overthrow the government. That charge generally considered to be false. The accusation leveled because these students wrote an article in their school newspaper that was critical of the government. They were expelled after the article was published and held a small protest in response to their expulsion at a landmark called Democracy Monument in Bangkok. The police fired tear gas and bullets at protesters. The military was called in and drove tanks into the middle of the crowd, and after telling the protesters to leave, the government troops boxed them in so they could not leave, using that failure to comply as justification for attacking, and in some cases, killing them. The king later condemned the government's inability to manage these protests while also criticizing the students who were at the center of them. This protest eventually resulted in the exile of several military leaders and the resignation of the prime minister, and is today remembered as a positive moment for democracy in Thailand, often referred to as the 1973 uprising. That said, The king's response was far from supportive of these protesters or their cause, and though the democracy movement made waves and even led to periodic bouts of actual democracy within the modern Thai governmental system, such moments were typically followed by, at times quite brutal, military rule, the demolition of democratic norms, and the tacit support by the monarchy of whatever governmental system was in place at any given time, no matter which way the wind blew. What I'd like to talk about today is another, more recent period of protests in Thailand, how the current Thai king plays into these protests, and why it's so remarkable that the protests are happening in the first place. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Financial Times, and it's entitled Thai Protesters Make History But Fail to Bend Government to Demands. This piece summarizes a series of recent protests and protest-related activities, beginning in the early months of 2020 and ending with an announcement in mid-December of 2020, with one of the protest leaders saying that they would be putting things on hold until the new year. He made that announcement, I should note, from a police station where he was reporting to face charges related to his involvement with these protests. But let's back up a bit. In late February 2020, the Future Forward Party, or FFP, was dissolved by the Thai government's constitutional court. The FFP was a progressive party founded in 2018 focused on restraining military power within Thai politics increasing levels of social and economic equality, and deconsolidating government power so that it didn't all rest in so few hands. The party did pretty well in the 2019 election, winning 30 seats in parliament and 50 MPs, but in the aftermath of that election, party leadership was slapped with legal charges that they claim were made up and being leveraged for political purposes. One of these charges was that the FFP aimed to overthrow the country's monarchy, and to give you a sense of how legit these charges actually were, those doing the accusing claimed that the FFP's use of a triangle on their logo proved that the party was aligned with or part of the Illuminati, a semi-fictitious secret society that's been associated with all sorts of often flagrantly laughably false conspiracy theories. That particular case was dismissed at the beginning of 2020, but the party was dissolved as a consequence of another charge, this one related to finances, and it was fairly broadly accepted that the financial investigation in question was encouraged by the country's military leadership, because the FFP wanted to reduce military influence in the government. None of the political parties that towed the military's power and government line supporting the existing dynamic and power structure, faced similar financial scrutiny. Alongside their disapproval of the military's hold on the government, the FFP was vocally against changes that had been made to the country's constitution in 2017. These changes, in aggregate, made the military a permanent authority within the country's government no matter which political party or collection of political parties happened to be technically, publicly, in charge, at any given moment. The Thai people voted these changes in as part of a larger bundle of changes that culminated in the acceptance of a new constitution. But the constitution they voted on wasn't the one that was eventually implemented. Six changes were added post-vote, most of which gave more power to the Thai monarch, This updated constitution made real political change in the country through formal official channels, all but impossible. And this was happening in the wake of about 90 years worth of often quite repressive governments by 13 successful coups and the installation of a military junta in control of the country in 2014. And that was the result of the most recent of those aforementioned coups. For five years following that junta's emergence in 2014, civil rights and political activities were essentially outlawed or ignored, economic inequality increased dramatically, and though politicians were still able to run for office and attain some power and responsibility, the military had become the real source of power, alongside the traditional monarch, still part of the Chakri dynasty, whose position became in some ways intertwined with that of this new junta. The FFP, then, was a challenge to this nearly century-old state of affairs, defined by military coups parceled up by brief moments of democracy, and its formation was a response to the military's attempt to lock its own power into place permanently, accompanied by a somewhat smaller but still quite brazen attempt by the monarchy to do the same. Another variable that seems to have inspired the creation of the FFP was the death of the previous Thai king and the ascension of his son, King Maha Vajiralongkorn. The previous king, King Pumipan Aduyadev, was generally well-respected and considered to be a good modern royal in the sense that he mostly stayed out of political issues but served as a solid mascot of a sorts for the country and its culture. He was visible and played his role, but didn't make any waves. The new monarch, in contrast, became controversial almost immediately. In 2018, the new king set things up so that royal assets previously considered to be owned by the state would instead be owned by him personally. And these assets added up to about 40 billion US dollars, which made him, by some estimates, the wealthiest ruler in the world. He also reinforced his own power politically and militarily by taking personal command over two army units and consolidating a few different offices into one unified government branch over which he had absolute control, allowing him to more than double the personal budget that he had available for expenses taken from the government's coffers as a consequence. It was unprecedented within modern Thailand the head of the monarchy to have any kind of military command. It was also unprecedented for him to intervene in politics, but he did that as well. Cabinet members elected after the new king ascended to power were made to swear an oath to the monarchy, but they left out the typical oath to the constitution, and there were protests after this breach, but nothing was ever done to correct it. The king also changed the Thai constitution so that a regent, someone who would govern in his stead, if he ever wasn't present in the country to do so himself, was no longer required. This allowed him to move to Bavaria in Germany, where he lives most of the time, conducting his monarchy related business from there. Something that Germany is none too happy about, and which many Thai people consider to be a slap in the face. He gets all this money and power from the government, but doesn't even deign to live in the country, providing him with all his many privileges. The king has also allegedly acquired a fleet of 38 jets and helicopters for his personal use, appointed a poodle as a courtier, and has set up a semi-permanent residence at a German Alpine resort hotel during a period in which most other hotels have been forced to close due to the COVID-19 pandemic. According to a prominent German public broadcast network, the king has been full-on running Thailand from this German ski resort, which is illegal in Germany and in Thailand, and while there, he is kept company by a clutch of concubines that he brought with him. The current king's violations of tradition and, in the minds of some, the sacred trust of his office, has made the Thai Les Majesty laws all the more troublesome for anyone who disagrees with the direction things are going. Les Majesty is French for to do wrong to majesty and typically refers to a law that makes speaking ill of the local royalty a punishable criminal offense. Thailand's Lej Majesty law is considered to be among the most, if not the most, punitive of such laws in the world, as insulting or even criticizing the king or his family can result in 3 to 15 years in prison for the person doing the insulting or criticizing. This particular king, behaving badly, then, Presents an especially tricky issue because commenting on his unusual, arguably illegal, and abusive behavior is a criminal offense with very significant consequences. It's within this context that these new protests began in February of 2020, initially within universities and high schools, before moving online as schools were closed by the newly emergent COVID 19 pandemic. That comparable downtime gave protesters a chance to better organize and formalize their message, though. So when a new round of protests began at Bangkok's Democracy Monument in mid-July, the protesters had agreed upon three core demands for the government. They wanted the House to be dissolved, the secession of intimidation tactics used against citizens by the government and military, and they wanted to have a new constitution drafted and approved. This group was very clear from the outset that they did not aim to overthrow the king, hoping that would help them avoid falling afoul of the country's lege majesty laws. And that remained the case as the protests spread to more cities, gaining participation from folks in more demographics, and over time adopting the causes of other groups that are oft ignored and trampled upon in the country. Like the LGBT community, which called for the legalization of same-sex marriage, alongside those other three core demands. In early August, a comparably small protest featured a prominent human rights activist criticizing the monarchy and calling for an end to the ever-increasing privileges the royal family enjoyed, alongside a reform of the Lege Majesty law that criminalized criticism of them. That speaker was arrested a few days later, but that he spoke those words in public without being immediately arrested and thrown in prison was itself quite the statement. It shocked a lot of people and triggered an expansion of the protests in subsequent days. By the time the protesters' demands were formally submitted to the House of Representatives, ten demands were on the list and protests that followed attracted tens of thousands of people at a time, while protest-related memes went viral on all the major social networks used in Thailand. A severe state of emergency was declared by the government. A few days after, a massive 200,000-person-strong pro-democracy protest was broken up by police and pro-government counter-protesters who had been bused in by the government for the occasion. These two groups came into physical conflict, and as a result, a curfew was imposed, as was a general ban on groups of five or more people. Riot police broke up protests that formed soon after, protest leaders were arrested, and media coverage of these events and anything related to them were censored by the government. This pattern continued through the end of October with increasingly high-powered weaponry utilized by police against protesters and increasingly sophisticated online tools utilized by protesters in their attempt to defy government restrictions and censorship. At the end of the month, gestures were made towards some kind of reform by the government, but none of the proposed solutions addressed the protesters' demands, so the protests continued. In mid-November, the Thai Senate and House of Representatives held a two-day session to assess the changes to the Constitution that had been proposed by the protest leaders. Five of the seven proposals were rejected outright, which served as a spark for more protests through the end of the month, at which point things had escalated, becoming more violent. Late in November, protest efforts began to more specifically target The military junta that runs the country, with protesters carrying inflatable ducks into an army barracks, shortly after having disrupted an anti coup drill set up by the government at a major intersection in Bangkok. On December 10th, protesters gathered outside the local United Nations office, hoping to pressure the UN into pressuring the Thai government into ceasing their crackdown on protesters and their opposition to freedom of expression in the country. This is a very truncated outline of recent events in Thailand. There have been a lot of protests just this year, and that's despite the fact that people were understandably hesitant to go out and gather in large groups during a global pandemic, not to mention the chance that they might be beaten, shot, or imprisoned for long periods of time by their government, the police, or counter-protesters. It's worth noting that most of these protests have made use of subversive humor rather than more formal, direct types of pressure, like threats or violence. Within a society that has been so consistently restrictive in recent memory, from the top down, merely saying the seeming unsayable can be an act of protest. And showing up where you're not supposed to be, and making the three-finger protest sign from the Hunger Games series, as has become common at these protests, is likewise a symbol of far more than a shared literary or filmographic understanding. It's a reference that itself has meaning, because making the reference in a place where that's not allowed is meaningful. A Thai assistant professor of political science interviewed for that Financial Times piece said, quote, the students have proved that Thai society would be ready to discuss this issue. They just needed someone to open the door. End quote. He also noted that the protesters' primary success was broadening the scope of public debate in the country. And an associate professor of peace and conflict studies from Japan said, quote, That's one of the big successes the protests have had, dismantling the old ideas about what can be talked about and what can't. End quote. He then noted that they have been substantially less successful at actually getting the government to do anything about the topics that they've brought up thus far. It could be argued that the government, the monarchical and military power centers, and the outward-facing political structures responding as they have is a reflex that itself may fan the flames of this series of protests, in part catalyzing whatever happens next. These ruling entities were protected for a very long time by a legal system and accompanying set of cultural norms that disallowed public criticism of those at the top of the power pyramid. The slow diminishment of those laws and norms may not be everything that the protesters might have hoped for, but it's arguably quite the accomplishment and may be a necessary step to achieving other sorts of gains and change in the coming months or years. The book that I'd like to recommend today is quite a significant undertaking if you choose to read it. It is called Capital and Ideology. It is by Thomas Piketty and it weighs in at something like 1100, maybe 1200 pages. Even the audiobook version is something like 40 or 45 hours worth of listening. It is a very substantial read. It is dense with information and historical case studies of a sort to support the various assertions made by the author very broadly. This is a book about ideology and capital and the relationship between the two and more specifically, what I would describe as a sort of flywheel relationship, where capital, and perhaps especially inequalities within systems that are predicated on capital, tend to inform ideology, and then ideology goes on to inform systems that allow and even encourage inequalities within the system of capital that is utilized. Now again, that is a very superficial summary of what this book is about, But it's definitely worth the read if you think you have the time or if you're looking for a nice, dense piece of nonfiction to whittle away at over time to get a different perspective on some aspects of history and the way our systems of physical, tangible value exchange can inform our systems of beliefs and those types of values and how that influence goes back and forth and back and forth infinitely, creating cycles that propagate and perpetuate throughout history. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. I've got a daily newsletter that focuses on the news that you can sign up for for free if you'd care to. You can find that at yesterdaysnewsletter.com, and you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at ColinIsMyName on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.